it's an exciting time in the book of Acts. It's, it's, it's great to see how God is beginning to just save all these Gentiles. And I think, I, I, I sort of picture the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, these guys being just as amazed as, as anybody else about what God's doing to, to save all these people, to bring all these people uh, to, to know the Lord Jesus. And we've seen that these guys have gone through some pretty tough things. They've risked their lives for the gospel. And, and we've learned from that, that there's no doubt that ministers of the gospel, people who, those of us who, who say, okay, we want to share Jesus with people, we can expect a level of persecution. We can expect a level of attack. But what we're going to see tonight is it's not just the ministers of the gospel, it's not just those who share the gospel that are under attack, it's the gospel itself. Because what the enemy wants to do is he doesn't want to just stop people from sharing the gospel. He knows that he can't do that completely. So another tactic of his is to try to twist the gospel. Kind of take the language of the gospel, maybe add something to it, maybe take something away from it. So it's less than the gospel is meant to be. And that's what's happening in Acts chapter 15. And so with this chapter... We're going to talk about what does it mean to guard the gospel. How did these guys guard the gospel? And there's four main lessons I think we're going to learn from this. So let's pick it up, verse 1. It says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, saying, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So these guys get together and there's this, this, this group has come to Antioch from Judea. We're going to see later on in the chapter that these guys weren't sent. They just went on their own volition. These are those who would, who would profess to be believers in Jesus, but they're saying, okay, it's great, Gentiles, that you see Jesus as God's chosen king, the Messiah, that you see him as God the Son, that you see him, uh, you know, as, as the, as your savior. That's great, but it's not enough. If you want to be saved, if you want to be delivered, if you want to be one of God's people, you have to obey the customs of Moses, the commands of Moses. And of course, Paul and Barnabas, they hear this and they think, they have, well, as Luke says, no small dissension. They start saying, hey, wait, wait a second, wait a second, you're adding to the gospel, this isn't right. And it's interesting because when, when Luke says this, he's wanting us to see that they really had an argument. There's a real contention going on between these guys. And the reason is, is because this is a salvation issue. They're saying you can't be saved unless you're circumcised. You can't be saved unless you keep the law of Moses and you believe in Jesus. So they're adding to the gospel. And the truth is, salvation is too important of an issue not to contend for. And this is kind of the first thing I want you guys to see about guarding the gospel, is that is contending is necessary. Fighting for the gospel is necessary. We have to be prepared to debate with people. We have to be prepared to, prepared to actually talk about things with people about these, about these kinds of issues. Specifically, we have to be willing to contend when someone's bringing in a false gospel. That's what we have to do. It says in verse 3, that says, so, so being on their way, they're going to Jerusalem, they want to say, okay, let's get an answer to this. So they're leaving Antioch, they're going up to Jerusalem to see, okay, what is the truth about this issue? 
It says, says, So being on uh, on their way by the church, they passed by Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused a great joy to all the brethren. Now this is cool, because they're going, okay, you, you get the sense that Paul and Barnabas are convinced that this is God's work. They've been preaching God's gospel, and God's been saving these Gentiles. They're convinced of it. Out of, out of humility, probably out of submission, they're going to Jerusalem to deal with the question. But on the way, they stop and they share with these other churches saying, hey, we've got to tell you what God's doing. And what happens? People are rejoicing. They're having great fellowship with these guys. This is important because as much as we do have to be those who contend for the faith, we, we, it doesn't mean that being contending means that we have to be contentious with everybody. Contending doesn't mean that we, uh, don't have to have, we can't have joy and fellowship. In fact, really, uh, oftentimes when we're standing up for the gospel, we're recognizing what the gospel actually is. That's when we have some of the richest fellowship with people. Because that, that's when there's a real clarity about why we're right with God and how we're right with God. And so verse 4, it says, And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed uh, rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, to be really clear about the situation, because it's going to be, it's easy for us to kind of read this now in the 21st century and say, these stinking legalists, I can't believe they would do this kind of thing. But don't forget, every single person who heard these, these believing Pharisees say this would have said, you know what? We can't take the law of Moses lightly. That's the truth of God. That's the word of God. And we can't take it lightly. So this was a legitimate question they had to wrestle through. They had to deal with it. But it did require them to contend because the gospel was at stake. And this is what the scripture talks about. Jude says, writes this, he says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith. Notice, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Which means at minimum, but that when Jude wrote that epistle, that little letter, right before the book of Revelation, that there was a, a, a clear enough understanding of what the gospel is. He says, the faith. Not the act of believing, but what we believe. The faith. That was established. And he said, we have to contend for that. In fact, it seems like Jude was wanting to initially write and say, hey, let's talk about how great our salvation is. Let's unpack it some more, learn to walk in it. But he says, no, i gotta, I got to encourage you guys to contend for it because it's under threat. And the rest of the letter, of course, is him talking about how it's under threat. But this is a reality. Guarding the gospel means that contending is necessary. We're going to have times when we have to debate with people. We have to talk with people. We have to guard the gospel. And this is really tricky because it happens oftentimes with other churched people. It's really hard. Because we don't want to treat other people. We don't want to treat people who have maybe a different understanding. We don't want to assume that they're purposely heretics or something. Because let's be honest, all of us are in process, aren't we? We're all trying to get our head around what this stuff means. But sometimes people are insistent on believing something that is actually a false gospel. And that's when we have to draw a line and say, listen, man, because I care for you, i got to say, this is a false gospel. I had uh, coffee with uh, another pastor of another church a few months ago. And he's a nice guy. He's, uh, he's from a church that we probably wouldn't do much stuff with, to be honest, because of some of the things that they're into. But definitely a believer. He's a good guy. Uh, and he's talking about uh, what God was doing in their fellowship. And he mentioned a specific teacher that they were listening to. They were listening to this guy's videos online. 
And as I'm listening to him, I'm going, oh, man. <laughs> because I'm, I'm thinking to myself, here's a guy, he's just a brother in the Lord. You know, we just have some fellowship. We, we don't really talk shop that much as much as just talking about pressures of, of ministry when we get together and we pray for each other. It's only occasional. I only see this guy maybe once or twice a year at the most. But he brought up something, and I thought, I can't let this one go. This is not just something we can agree to disagree. This is a gospel issue. This, the guy he's watching preaches a clearly false gospel. And so as we're sitting there in McDonald's, I said to him, you know, bro, you mentioned so-and-so, and I just need to say, you know, I've done some research on that guy. And it's not just that I disagree with him. He preaches a false gospel. And I kind of showed him, I laid out some reasons why that was there. And, and I said, listen, we're going to disagree about the use of the gifts and what does the Holy Spirit do or not do. We can disagree on some of that stuff, but this is, is a gospel thing. And this guy openly preaches a false gospel. And I was just waiting for him to be offended and storm out. But actually, he said, you know what? We did think there were some off things about that. And we were wondering, where do we draw the line? I said, well, I just really encourage you to look this up and check this out. Because this is bigger than, again, just we disagree on, on some secondary things. But we have to do that. I mean, we have to do that. He's got a church full of people. It might be a small little church. But still, people who are listening to, to this video from a guy who they probably think is awesome because he's a guy in America. He's got a big church, right? And the guy preaches a false gospel. So there's a, there's a need for us to contend for the faith. There's a need for us to contend for the gospel. We need to do that. And we need to do that in a way that's not contentious. We need to do that out of love and out of compassion for people. So what happens, verse 6, Now the apostles and the elders, they came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them. Notice, purifying their hearts by faith. So Peter shares his testimony. After these guys bring this issue up and there's a bit of dispute going on, Peter stands up. He's been the spokesman of the apostles and he says, Listen, you guys know the facts. You know that God chose me to preach to the Gentiles, to Cornelius. And before I got done preaching, those guys were filled with the Spirit just like we were at Pentecost. And God was just putting a stamp of approval that these guys had saving faith. Their hearts had been purified by faith. They had believed the gospel of Jesus. They had believed who Jesus is and what he had done for them. In other words, Peter's making a plain point here. He's saying, okay, God justified those Gentiles by faith. They're rendered innocent by faith. The way we say we were rendered innocent by faith. And he goes on to say, verse 10. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the necks of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved, notice again, in the same manner as they. So now he's kind of, kind of reversing it. First he's like, okay, look, the Gentiles got saved like we did, but guess what? We need grace like they do. We need to be saved by the grace of Jesus the same way they need to be saved by the grace of Jesus. Now, after they say this, the multitude sort of is, is quiet. And Paul and Barnabas stand up. And they begin to testify how, verse 12, it says, they, that all the multitude kept silent. And they listened to Barnabas and, and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. 
In other words, again, here's God confirming the gospel, confirming that, that these people have believed the gospel, and confirming that Paul and Barnabas are indeed preaching the gospel by bringing these supernatural signs and wonders. The point is this, and this is the second thing we need to understand if we're going to guard the gospel. First, contending is necessary, but second, grace is fundamental. It's foundational. We've got to understand that the gospel is the gospel of grace. Remember, grace, undeserved favor. Also, grace, divine enablement. It's God who works in us to save us. It's God who does so, not because we deserve it or ever could earn it, but just freely, undeservedly. Now, I want to read a long section of Scripture, okay? It's so long it takes two slides, but try to bear with me, okay? Just to make sure we have our heads around the gospel of grace, because you can't contend for the faith if you don't understand the gospel of grace. So let's look at what Paul would, how Paul would unpack this in the book of Romans, right? This is Romans chapter 3. Paul writes, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, remember the issue here is do the Gentiles have to keep the law? By the deeds of the law, No flesh will be justified in his sight. Why? For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So there's not a single person who's ever going to be rendered innocent because they've kept the law. Paul makes that really clear. What's the purpose of the law? To give us the knowledge of sin, to show us that we need a Savior, right? He goes on to say, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, notice, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So in other words, the law and the prophets are good. They testify that not only we didn't need the law, but that the, the God is righteous and that righteousness is going to be given to us. He says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. Why is there no difference? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so Paul's being really clear in the book of Romans. Why is it that we have to be saved by grace? Because we've all sinned, right? This is Gospel 101. Check it out. He goes on to say, being justified freely. In other words, not by anything we can earn or pay for. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. That is, the satisfying of wrath by His blood through faith. That's how we receive it. To demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might, notice, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I just really want to encourage you guys to know these verses well. Do you understand what it means when he says that God is both just and the justifier? Just means he renders what's righteous when it's right. God will deal with sin rightly. Justifier means he's the one that renders those innocent. How can God render guilty people innocent and still be just? Because he put the, his wrath on his own son, Jesus. This is the gospel. This is gospel 101. An article came through Facebook, my Facebook feed this week, from a guy who's a good guy. But he was, he was uh, really guy, a guy named Michael Brown. He's an he's a, he's a, a Arminian theologian. He's a good guy. But one of the things he said did kind of make me feel uncomfortable because he was... He was saying it for a good reason, but I think what he said was not necessarily a good thing, per se. Somebody was defending Justin Bieber's conversion. I don't know if you guys heard Justin Bieber supposedly got converted and says he wants to live uh, like Jesus. 
And someone on American television, who they, this is where they talk about these things, was defending him. Now, the person that was defending him happens to be Kirk Cameron's sister. You know who Kirk Cameron is? He's uh, he, Ray Comfort. Any you guys heard of Ray Comfort? Okay. Kirk Cameron is like Ray Comfort's uh, sort of partner in ministry. Ray Comfort's a really solid, really good guy. Anyway, the, the thing was, she was just trying to, on this view, on the show called The View, where there's all these uh, other non-Christian ladies, and she's one of the hosts, it's like a women's show. She's wanting, they're, they're kind of like, oh, is this for real? Come on, give me a break. And she's like, oh, look, you know, he's not saying he's perfect. He's saying that he's forgiven. He's saying he wants to live for Jesus. That's a good thing. I don't think we should do anything, but just kind of wait and see, and hopefully he, he walks the walk. That's all she was pretty much saying. Well, this guy, Michael Brown, decided that he, he, he was worried because he felt like what she was saying was, uh, what did he call it? I'm trying to remember how he called it. I want to misquote him because he is a good brother. Something along the lines of um, uh, this grace alone teaching. I forgot how he said it. But basically made it sound like uh, what we might call greasy grace or cheap grace, where, you know, like, oh, yeah, just say a prayer and everything's fine. Now, I guarantee you that the lady who said this, or I wouldn't guarantee you, but I'm pretty sure the lady who said this doesn't believe that. We don't definitely believe that. But this is the problem that people have, even in the church, even very solid, good guys. They're so afraid. Ah, don't get too into grace. If you, if you, if you talk too much about grace, people are going to continue in sin. That's not the case. The reality is, grace is the foundation. If we understand grace to be not just unmerited favor, but divine enabling, it's the very foundation of the gospel. And we need to remember that. Now, this is where it gets tricky, because sometimes, again, well-meaning people like this guy, uh, Dr. Michael Brownie, is a good guy, will say things like that, trying to combat another issue, which is basically... Uh, what I would say is just basically Christians not recognizing that God calls them to be disciples and to walk in holiness. But still, there's this reality that the foundation of the gospel is grace. Peter's making this clear. It's about grace. Paul makes it clear. It's about grace. That is the foundation. This is what we preach. This is what we trust in. I don't know about you, but the longer I walk with God, the more I am just amazed by how gracious God is. And the more I'm dependent, God, unless you saved me, I will always be lost. It's got to be you who does this. So this is a foundational thing. And we have to, again, this is what we're contending for. We're contending for this. So, that happens, and then we get to verse 13, and what happens? After they had become silent, after Paul and Barnabas stopped speaking, James stands up and begins to speak. Now, James this is not James, the brother of John. Remember, he was already martyred in the book of Acts. This is James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, the one who wrote the book of James. We're probably going to study uh, pretty soon on Sunday mornings. And here's what James says. James answers saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how at first... So how God at first visited the Gentiles to take uh, out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. He says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which is fallen ruins. I will rebuild its ruins. I will set it up so that the rest of the mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. 
Then he says, known to God from all eternity are all his works. Now, do you notice what James is doing here? James is wanting to say, okay, what these guys say jives with Scripture. Because this is the third thing we have to understand if we're going to guard the gospel. It's Scripture that's the authority. It's Scripture that's the authority. No theologians are the authority. No pastors are the authority. It's Scripture that's the authority. The, the reformers aren't the authority. We learn from these men. We, we, we appreciate systems of theology. They help us understand, but they're not the authority. Scripture's the authority. James goes back to Scripture and says, look, at what these guys are talking about is what God totally said. He was going to do this work and bring the Gentiles to himself. God was going to do this. So why would we be surprised when God actually does it? So, Verse 19, therefore, James says, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Interesting, the word trouble means to harass. See, God gave us the scriptures, guys, to train us, not to trouble us. That doesn't mean that there's not things we're going to read that are going to go, we're going to go, oh my goodness. In fact, God says he honors the one, he looks to the one who, tr- who is contrite of heart and trembles at his word. That's what he says in Isaiah 66. But the purpose of the word is not just to make us sort of like, oh no, what's going to happen, what's going to happen? That's not the purpose of God's word. It's to train us. The scriptures are to make us wise in the salvation, to show us not only that we need God, but we can trust God. And we know that because of Jesus. And so, so he says, look, let's not trouble these guys anymore. They're, they're turning to God. Let's not lay a heavy burden on them. He says, but we will write to them, and here's what he says, to abstain from things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, from things strangled from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues of every, every Sabbath. Now we're going to talk about those things specifically in just a couple of minutes when we get to verse 28. But what he, what he means here in verse 21 by Moses, he's talking about the fact, look, these things have to be, these things need to be there because of what people know about Moses' law. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. The point is, Scripture is authoritative. That's, that's the authority. That's how we guard the gospel. So quickly, last thing, verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was named Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, saying, The apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Now, if you read that, you might go, oh, okay, that's, that's fine. Um, they're, they're writing a letter, isn't that nice? And you might think, isn't that nice writing a, le- a little letter? But understand, the way it starts off with, by the apostles, the elders, the brethren, this is an authoritative letter. They're going to write something that says, this is what you guys need to do. And this is important as well, because when we're talking about guarding the gospel. We need to recognize, here's the fourth thing, you guys ready? We need to recognize that obedience is required. Obedience is required. One of the things that we make the mistake of thinking is, because we're saved by grace, obedience is kind of canceled out. But the truth is, listen, obedience does not, is not canceled by the gospel. Obedience is clarified by the gospel. 
How God wants us to obey is different than how God, or, or, or what God wants us to obey is, is a bit different. It's clarified in the New Testament compared to what we had in the Old Testament. But this means no place for obedience. We're called to obey the gospel. God commands, believe. We say, oh, I'm going to do what you say. I'm going to believe. I'm going to obey that command. Obedience is still required. And so they're sending this authoritative letter saying, this is what needs to happen. Here's what we want you to do. Look at verse 24. So they write, Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised to keep the law, to whom we gave no such command. Now, the writers, the leaders of the church there in Jerusalem are one of these Gentile believers, these new, new believers, to understand it was never our intention to have you unsettled. It wasn't like, it wasn't a bait, uh, a bait and switch. Now, there are, there are some churches, uh, that do this. Um, specifically, what I would call, uh, I'd label them as hyper Arminianistic churches. Maybe like strong, some, some old school strong Pentecostal churches. Sometimes what they can do is they can kind of say, Oh, God wants to save you by grace, save you by grace. And you're like, Okay, I, I want that. And then you receive that. Then it's like, No, here's all the stuff you have to do. And it feels like it's a bait and switch. And I've had a lot of people that I've known over the years who have felt that way. They, well, they said God loved me and he wanted a relationship with me. And then I came Then all of a sudden God had all these rules I had to keep. And if not, he was going to cast me into hell. So they actually weren't preaching the gospel of grace. It was like this bait and switch thing. And, and people get unsettled and they get stuck in those churches. Sometimes some of those churches, not all of them, some of them are great. But some of those churches, people get stuck in and they feel like, oh, I can't leave this church. If I leave this church, I will no longer be saved. It's, it's real serious stuff. And it's like the, the leaders of Jerusalem are saying, guys, we didn't want your souls to be unsettled that way. That wasn't our plan. Okay? So he says, verse 25, It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you by our beloved Barnabas and Paul, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent uh, Judas and Silas who will also report the same things by word of mouth. Now, here's what these apostles and elders are wanting these guys to understand. They're saying, listen, obedience is required, but they're recognizing that obedience flows, fl- flows freest from settled souls. <laughs> so they're wanting to settle these guys down. They're wanting to make sure that they're not all freaked out, worried. Now, one of the ways that God wants to sell our hearts is through men and women who love sacrificially. I mean, there's, there's, there's something about that. When we love people, and we're there for people, there's a, I don't want to say love, un, loving unconditionally, because to me I think that sends the wrong message, but loving sacrificially, where they're actually laying down their lives and putting someone else before themselves. When we see that, there's something that settles down to us. It rings true to us. We think, yeah, that's what the gospel is supposed to look like. And that really helps people. It settles people down. This is important because, listen, if we're going to guard the gospel, guess what? We've got to walk by the gospel. And if we're going to help people be in the true gospel, we need to demonstrate the gospel. Help people's souls be settled because we are people who are trying to walk in the sacrificial love. But also, notice what they say. Look, we're sending this letter to you saying what we want, but we're also sending these other guys... So that basically you don't just have the letter, but you have the letter, you have the testimony of Paul and Barnabas, and you have the testimony of these other guys. 
In other words, basically you have the witness of, uh, you have the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now the scripture says this is how truth is established, right? One witness shall not rise up against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. This was a, it's a common thing in law. It's a, it's a common uh, principle in scripture that, 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 that look, this is, we want to give, there's evidence. It's not just like read this letter and, and Paul, Barbara say, hey, look, there's, there's, it's being backed up. Again, this is how we settle. We see people's souls being settled. Not only do we demonstrate the sacrificial love, but also, listen, we show people the reasonableness of the gospel. That we help people see that, no, this is, this is testified by of, of all the apostles throughout the scripture. This is what has been believed in the first century. It's what's believed in the 21st century. There's nothing new about this. It's not just something that came from the Reformation. It was clarified, but it's been believed all throughout the centuries. Knowing this stuff is important. Not just for pastors. For all of us. Because people get unsettled easy, and we've got to be able to settle them back in. But say, let's go back to the testimony of Scripture. Far more than two or three witnesses that we can be established in, we can be settled in. Now here's what they go on to say. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these, notice, these necessary things. Now here's the things that they are saying that the Gentiles need to obey. Remember, the big question is, what aspects of the Old Testament law apply to Gentile Jesus followers? What aspects of the Old Testament law? So see, look what they bring up, how they bring these things up, okay? Here's the things that are necessary. Verse 29, that you abstain from things offered to idols. Why? Why was it a big deal to eat things offered to idols. Now, Paul talks about this issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols. He talks about it in uh, Romans chapter 14. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And, he, and he's pretty thorough about these issues. Why? Because, think about it, if you were a Gentile, so you worshipped the gods of Rome or whatever, and so you would go to the, the pagan temple and maybe sleep with pagan prostitutes or may, maybe go to where they were had the, the, the meat that was sacrificed to those pagan gods and then you would get that meat really cheap and kind of have a little bit of a barbecue, you know? And so you'd eat that meat there at, at the same time. If you were eating that meat, people might think, well, I guess it's okay that we still go to these pagan idols. I guess it's okay that we worship these things. Now, Paul says, look, you would know, yeah, the idol's nothing, it means nothing, and it's good cheap meat, so what's the big deal? But it could be a big deal because it's going to stumble these guys. It's going to keep somebody or make it difficult for somebody to trust the gospel. Look else what he says, verse 29, okay? So abstain not just from things sacrificed to idols, but also from blood and from things strangled. Now, the Jews had strict dietary laws. Very strict dietary laws. They could not eat things that had blood in it. They could not eat um, things that had been strangled. There was a strict way where they had to slit the animal's throat. They, all the dread, uh, blood drained out before they could uh, cook the meat and eat it. And again, what would happen if you ate some of this meat that wasn't prepared the right way as a believer? If you participated in this, what would happen? You'd stumble the Jewish converts. They think you don't care anything about the fact that, you know, the Bible says the, the life of, of, of the animal is in the blood. And they would probably say, that, that, doesn't that point to Jesus? Are you lightly taking the blood? I mean, what? They would be really stumbled by this. It would be a hard thing for them to understand that you would do. 
So the church said, don't do it. Don't eat things sacrificed to idols. Don't think, eat things that have been uh, strangled with blood. And what's the last command? Check it out. Verse 29. And from sexual immorality. Now, what are we talking about? We're talking about what aspects of the Old Testament law do the Gentiles still need to keep? What's the answer? Those things pertaining to sexual immorality. Which means what? Leviticus 18 still applies. That means the only kind of sexual activity that God uh, says that, that he wants us to pursue is one man, one woman in marriage for life. That's what he wants us to pursue. Now, here's the thing that's tricky. What's tricky is, is that all of us are broken, aren't we? We're broken people. And that brokenness affects our sexuality. So there's a need for us to be gracious about people's rustlings, about people's past especially, and to make sure people understand that that is washed away, the new creations, uh, new creatures in Christ Jesus. But it doesn't mean that we can lower the standards of God on that issue. Now, a couple of things really quick about this. We're almost done. First of all, talking about things that we eat, Paul says in Romans chapter 14, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for the man who eats with offense. It's, it's good neither to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbled or is offended or is made weak. So in other words, we're always concerned about love over liberty. Okay? So yeah, we're free to do those things, but are we actually loving if we do those things? But look what the Bible says about sexual morality. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says it as plainly as can be. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Here's what sets you apart. And he's writing to Gentiles here. Here's what sets you apart. That you abstain from sexual immorality. See, it's not us as Christians trying to be prudish. It's the scripture that says, listen, we should be sexually holy people. That God calls us to be separated that way. To look to him, to trust him, to be that kind of, those kind of people. Now, a couple things about this, and then we'll, we'll close. Sorry, this went a bit long. I apologize. Um, first of all, we need to understand that this is definitely reinforcing the Old Testament standards of sexuality. It is. I mean, a lot of people want to say nowadays, well, a lot of Christians even want to say nowadays, or churches want to say that, um, you know, Jesus never said anything against homosexuality, which isn't completely true. Because just because he didn't name the sin specifically, he did, uh, he did affirm the words of Moses and affirm God's intended design for sex and marriage. But also here we have the New Testament, these people, and this remember, who's, who's penning this letter? It's James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he's affirming the Old Testament standards of sexuality and saying this still applies to Gentile believers. So we can't kind of get away from that, all right? So this does reinforce that. But also know this, that these standards were as countercultural in the first century as they are now. We don't think that. We think, oh, because we, we tend to think of Christians in the West, here in Great Britain, we tend to think of, oh, those are puritanical Puritans or the Victorian era, you know, Queen Victoria. So we think it's the Christian culture that put these things 
there. No, this is biblical. It was, and it was crazy countercultural in the first century. It was nuts to tell Gentiles who would go to pagan temples. These Gentiles would go to the pagan temples before they were Christians, and they'd choose man or woman, and they'd sleep with who they wanted to. Because it was part of the way that they worshipped their deities. And it's just as countercultural now. Now again, does this mean that we should be insensitive towards people? And No, it doesn't. But the reality is this. Okay, remember we're talking about obedience is required. It's our love, it's the love of God that should motivate us in our view of our sexuality and in our use of our sexuality. It should be the love of God. God's love for us, that God loves us and, he, and the standards He puts for us are for our good and that we want to love Him back and obey Him, right? To love God is to obey Him. Now again, let's not forget the rest of these things we've talked about. That grace is foundational to the gospel and the scripture itself is the authority and we need to contend for that. But let's also remember that God calls us to this kind of obedience and God calls those who are going to follow him to this kind of obedience. This is the good news as we talked about this morning. People can change. 